And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, but with cockpit temperatures soaring and drivers suffering in Qatar, should the race have been off? And is F1 doing enough to protect its competitors' welfare? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss those questions and more are Josh Sutil, Johnny Reynolds, and special guest, Dr. Chris Tyler. Well, Chris, we'll start with you, because it's not very often we have a doctor on the show, someone who's actually qualified. So we're delighted to have you on this podcast. Your research history obviously makes you supremely qualified to talk about the effect of heat on the drivers in Qatar. So for the benefit of listeners, can you just give us a brief overview of your background and the people you've worked with? Yeah, uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, so, yeah, so I'm based at the University of Roehampton in, in southwest London, uh, and my research background uh, focuses on how humans respond to uh, environmental extremes, most notably temperature. Um, and we've worked with um, firefighters, military, um, uh, frail and ill individuals, but also probably more relevant to this, athletes. Uh, usually work with cyclers, runners, footballers, those sorts of things, but also have worked with, with Formula One. And so over the last eight or so years have been involved with a couple of the drivers and, and teams trying to work out how we can improve their health and performance in in hot environments. Lots of, obviously, lots of the races are scheduled somewhere nice and hot, and so um, we've been working with them to try and come up with some strategies to to minimise the effects of those temperatures. Yeah, so as listeners can tell, very, very well qualified for this particular topic. So thank you very much for joining us. Coming next to you, Johnny, you're a podcast producer, so you aren't often in front of the microphone, but you do have a background that makes you a good person to join this podcast. So can you explain yourself, please? Yeah, I can explain myself. Um, many eons ago, before I got into motor racing or podcasting, I actually uh, got a degree in sports and exercise science from the University of Exeter. So whilst I wouldn't claim to be anywhere near as qualified as uh, Dr. Chris to speak on this subject. Um, I'm quite interested in physiology and the welfare of sports people. So yeah, something I take a keen interest in and um, was particularly interested in everything that was going on in Qatar. Excellent. So yeah, a sort of semi-qualified in the, in this company, I'd call you, which is uh, which is doing Always better than, <laughs> doing better than some of us. But Josh, are you hiding any particular qualifications in this area? Sports science, medicine, anything you can reveal that uh, gives you credibility? Well, I'd say I'm quarter qualified, maybe. Um, I've got a, a medical biochemistry bachelor degree, so there's a, a basic understanding there. But certainly, I feel like my knowledge was amplified uh, 10 times by speaking to, to Dr. Tyler earlier in the week. So uh, yeah, <laughs> learning very much. But uh, yeah, I got, got the basic understanding. But uh, on this podcast, I don't know about you, Ed, but certainly coming in about third or fourth, I think. 
on uh, <laughs> most useful. Well, we've been going down in descending order because I'm not sure that my English and American literature degree is particularly relevant to this one. <laughs> I, I will say at least I've, I've been covering F1 for many years and I was in Qatar and I can say particularly after the race because it was really humid as well uh, as hot, unusually humid for, uh, for that part of the world. So uh, I did have some idea. I mean, when you're walking around the paddock after and it's pretty hard work, you can only imagine what it's like for the drivers and some of them were looking pretty destroyed when we spoke to them after the race. But yeah, that doesn't really qualify me to say a great deal, so I'll, I'll try and keep my contributions to a minimum. So let's get into this topic of driver welfare, because we had the Qatar Grand Prix. Multiple drivers suffered considerably due to the extreme heat and humidity. Estimated cockpit temperatures, 60 to 80 degrees, that kind of range. So Josh, can you just give a quick overview of how things played out there, both in the race and what everyone had to say afterwards? Yeah, so the, the conditions were particularly bad on Sunday. Um, it wasn't as bad on, on Friday and Saturday. So it, it caught the drivers and teams a little bit off guard, really, on Sunday. There were no such issues, really, after the sprint race. But even on Sunday, after that same distance, almost you know, a third into the race, there were already plenty of signs there. Um, you know, we had Lance Stroll saying he was passing in and out of consciousness. We had other drivers reporting nausea. Um, you know, Russell was, was asking his engineer to keep him um, giving him encouragement because he was really struggling he obviously you could see that he was putting his hands out the monocoque and you know the drivers just looked absolutely exhausted after the race so it's hard to think of a another race like this where there's been such a, a visible toll on the drivers and we know that now they obviously do so much training for races like this and yet still that didn't seem to be enough um it was one of those things where i think it was um lucky that it wasn't even worse i think it was clearly a bit a bit of a near miss with all the the symptoms and everything that was going on on sunday i think we're glad to come out with it with you know talking about this in, in terms of there not being a, a really serious accident i mean a driver losing consciousness behind the wheel obviously that could be um you know devastating so it, it's good that all the drivers are walking away and hopefully they've all now back to full fitness but yeah clearly it, it extracted a really heavy toll and was just a, a combination of so many factors, really. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's hard to think of a race like this. We've had hotter races, but perhaps there are a few. This might be the most public example of the the drivers really, really str struggling in the heat and talking about it after the race as well. I mean, perhaps that's due to now having you know more media than in the past, or more television rather and social media coverage. But certainly, this is this is the most public example of what extreme heat can do to to F one drivers. But you know, we've ever seen. And I'm just thankful that uh, it wasn't even worse. Yeah, certainly in the however many hundreds of Grand Prix I've been at, I've never seen drivers so universally uh, visibly struggling after the race. So Chris, as you've mentioned, you've worked with F1 drivers. I think McLaren driver Oscar Piastri is one of those in terms of preparing to deal with extreme conditions. So does the fact that these really well-prepared, well-conditioned athletes struggled so much make this more concerning and show that this really has to be taken seriously this isn't just complaining drivers finding it's a little bit uncomfortable uh, yeah i mean absolutely i mean i've seen different opinions since qatar about you know it's f1 is meant to be a challenge versus you know you shouldn't be uh under that that sort of strain when when driving and so yeah i mean drivers are used to a lot of demands. We often kind of overlook that. Um, they're used to driving in not just different temperatures, but different time zones, lots of travel, and although they travel quite nicely, lots of these demands are going to you know, affect their, their well-being and their health. And often, I mean, we I traditionally got involved, originally got involved because of the, the Singapore Grand Prix. So another hot, humid race um, that drivers like the challenge of. And to my knowledge, yes, it's a challenge, but I haven't seen anywhere near the, you know, the the fallout that we've had from Qatar. And so F1 needs to be a challenge. It doesn't need too much radical overhaul to still be a challenge, but it can be done with a little bit more uh, focus on driver welfare. And the, yeah, I mean, Qatar was obviously a whole new level. And so even in these extremely well-prepared, well-trained, resilient athletes, um, Something obviously needs to be done to ensure it doesn't happen again, because as, as, as Josh mentioned earlier, you know, what could have happened um, doesn't really bear thinking about. And I think it was a bit of a, a lucky escape that nothing more severe did happen. And obviously to understand the difference between 
perhaps drivers being a little bit pushed and a little bit uncomfortable and the more serious things I guess we need to understand hypothermia in this case so that's hyperthermia which is getting too hot so overheating effectively obviously hypothermia I think people would be more familiar with hyperthermia very similar uh, were, but that's quite significant so what implications does that have how does that set in is there a kind of a, a set trigger point is it something that if you dip into a little bit it's not a big problem but if you get deeper into it then it's a serious one how does that play out yeah so we're so we are as humans we produce our own heat so uh, a textbook would tell you that we're all sitting about 37 degrees celsius and we're doing that because we're producing heat as a byproduct from uh, metabolism as soon as we start exercising we start moving or we start doing any work um, we produce more heat as a byproduct and by and large, that's usually fine. So if you go for a run, if you go for a run today, it, we've, we've finally got October weather in the UK now, so it's it's cold and miserable. If you go for a run today, you'll probably start out a bit chilly. As you start moving, you're producing heat, and you'll probably end up sweaty and warm, but you will not be anywhere near you know hypothermic. You would just have elevated your body temperature a little bit. When it comes to the drivers, they're not doing, I always say this, and they don't like me for saying it, but they're not doing as much work as if you were going for a, a long distance run, but they are still doing work, even you know, resisting the, the, the two, three, four, five, six Gs that they're resisting, they are producing muscular activity to do so. Um, so they're producing a bit of work, but where the real problem comes for them is they're not running in a cold, miserable October UK uh, morning. They are sitting on essentially an engine, on a track that could be 40, 50, 60 degrees Celsius radiating heat, um, in fire retardant overalls and layers, which means any heat that they are producing, they can't lose. If we went for a run today, we would be losing that heat quite easily. Uh, they are losing the heat, but it's being trapped by the suit. And so basic you know, creates a sort of conservatory effect where they lose heat, but it makes the area around them in between their suits and themselves hotter. Uh, also, if the surrounding uh, seat, uh, track, air, whatever, if that's warmer as well, you're gaining heat from that. And so what essentially you end up doing is sort of slowly cooking. You're cr producing heat on the inside. You're creating a hot microclimate around you because you can't lose it to the environment. And then the extra issues of temperature, car, um, sorry, track, temperature, air, those sorts of things mean you gain heat or at least definitely can't lose it. Most of the time, that's fine. So again, the drivers will be warming up a little bit. That's fine. And quite often what we'll, what we'll see is that actually a bit of increase is fine. Muscles are more efficient, and a little bit warmer than when they are when they're colder, those sorts of things. But over, the, over a duration of a race, they're going to be start, you know, they're going to be accumulating a lot of heat. And if we get into the sort of 38 and a half to 39 and above threshold, so, so call it a two degrees Celsius increase, then it's going to start being noticeable. Um, we have no idea how hot they are because the driver data isn't, isn't available. Um, but they're certainly demonstrating signs of exertional heat exhaustion, which means they're probably in the 39s um, to be nauseous, to be losing consciousness, those sorts of things. Um, and so that's quite warm. It's, you know, in different situations, that's fine. Marathon runners are probably similar temperature or hotter and can, but can lose the heat. So it's not so much of an issue, but in the, in the drivers, they're hot, they can't lose heat. There's no escape. Um, and so it becomes a bit of a, bit of an increasing um, issue over time. And Chris, how about recovery from uh, from a race like that you know how long would you expect it to take for a driver to recover from going through sort of those challenges and what would you expect them to need to do afterwards my my thinking here is you know if we were to have a back-to-back -back race um the following weekend in another challenging environment you know are there potential knock-on effects would people be fully recovered for for that scenario yes i mean the at a whole body level the, the body's pretty good at recovering so if we think the two major physiological stresses that we could um, look at would be probably be body temperature and, and heart rate, heart rate being an indication of, of cardiovascular strain. So if we take those as markers of recovery, um, you're probably, I mean, in a normal environment, so if they get out of the car, they go into a cool down room that's 20 degrees or something like a normal, a normalish temperature, they're probably body, their body temperature is probably back to normal in an hour or so. 
Um, their heart rate is probably back to normal in far far less than that, 20 minutes or so. Um, you could speed that up. So you could double the rate of cooling by cold water immersion. So quite often, some of the drivers will do that before a race to try and start a bit colder, but you could speed up that recovery afterwards. So from those sorts of really crude measurements, you could say they're, you know, they're recovered in an hour, but they're clearly not. Um, that's just the easy to measure things. All of these responses, so body temperature, you can get a, a sort of a systemic inflammatory response. So that means that you're releasing a, a load of cytokines and other things without getting too technical. They have knock, knock on effects. And so we're looking at trying to restore our levels in those back to baseline um, 24, 48 hours, something like that. So we've got this uh, biochemical response that's taking longer. Um, and then we've also got the idea of, of hydration status. Like you talked about back-to-back -back races. Uh, we haven't got the data in, in drivers, but with the mechanics who do back-to-back -back races, we have got some hydration data. And what you'll find with them is that they will be chronically dehydrated over time because the amount of which they lose fluid over a race weekend, so for a mechanic, that's Wednesday to Sunday, um, they will be dehydrating progressively throughout the weekend. They will have a couple of days off, but they might be going to the next track, you know, three days later. So then they'll start the following week uh, less hydrated than they started the previous week. And so you have this knock-on effect. That's likely to be less of an issue for the drivers. Um, they're looked after a little bit better for various reasons. They have a little bit more money. They have a, uh, they they don't fly in until the Thursday. Those sorts of things, but they're certainly going to be without without a deliberate um, conscious thought about it. There's definitely this potential that you're going to have fact, things like hydration, which may not be optimal by the time you start the next the next race. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think even as a journalist, often with, with those races, it's quite easy to uh, to get into that. You have to be quite yep. conscious about that, particularly in the, in the unusual conditions. One thing that is interesting is the question of what drivers should be doing after races, because one thing that did stand out in Qatar, because usually they finish the race, they go and do TV interviews, then they speak to the written media. And that process was much more extended because some drivers were coming through quite quickly as normal and some of them were visibly struggling. Lance Stroll looked quite tired. Nico Hülkenberg looked quite, um, you know, they were, they were, they were up, upright and walking around, but they didn't, <laughs> didn't look at their best. Some of them looked quite relaxed. Others came a little bit later. I know George Russell had an ice bath before coming over. Fernando Alonso was, was quite late as well. So is this something that maybe in terms of that recovery, you can mitigate what happens if you say, well, if there's certain conditions, maybe you let, just let the drivers have a little bit of an extra window before they're obligated to do the media stuff because that is actually regulated. So they're always under pressure to, to get on with it. So is that one of the kind of easy things that maybe could be done to improve their lot? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think lots of the mitigations for heat are somewhat common sense. It's just enforcing them or... Um, acknowledging them as common i guess quite often what you think of as common sense isn't outside your world but yeah things like that so you could easily delay that you could easily instigate a a window of time in which certain drivers could do a water immersion we know that will increase the rate twofold pretty much at the rate of body temperature reduction um that will also help the recovery of things like uh, heart rates so you'll get a, a reduction in heart rate quicker if you're immersed uh, it also, which often is overlooked, it'll you know it'll make you recover from a perceptual point of view better as well. You will feel less hot if you are less hot, and if your skin, most notably, is less is less hot. Um, and so there could be this understanding that you might need to sort of change procedures or timings and things like that. It could also be there's more flexibility because not all drivers are going to be equally affected. Maybe not even just heat. There could be all sorts of other reasons, but we'll focus on heat for today. But suddenly you get this little bit of flicking of, of um, switching around. And so you might be expecting to interview George Russell at a certain time, but actually, I don't know, Bottas is coming in instead or something like that. Um, that's an example of, I think, like when the FIA have been very proactive in saying we want to do something about this to make it make sure it doesn't, similar doesn't happen again. That's something which I think is very easy to do um, with the uh, understanding that obviously TV and media want want their piece of the cake as well but there could be a little bit of flexibility in the order that they get that for sure 
you know, that seems a sensible way of doing it. And it's worth noting the FIA have said they're going to investigate this and take action. I'll just read out their statement. They said, while being elite athletes, drivers should not be expected to compete under conditions that could jeopardise their health or safety. The safe operation of the cars is at all times the responsibility of the competitors. However, as with other matters relating to safety, such as circuit infrastructure and car safety requirements, the FIA will take reasonable measures to establish and communicate acceptable parameters in which competitions are held. As such, the FIA has begun an analysis into the situation in Qatar to provide recommendations for future situations of extreme weather conditions. It should be noted that while next year's edition of the Qatar Grand Prix is scheduled later in the year when temperatures are expected to be lower, the FIA prefers to take material action now to avoid a repeat of this scenario. So it's a question of watch this space. Now the FIA has resolved to take some action. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Chris, we've laid out some of the problems. Are there any obvious areas to look at for the solutions, whether that's the calendar, technical solutions, exactly how the schedule fits together? Where should F1 be looking? Yes, I think there are some easy solutions, which is why it doesn't need to change sort of the the, the very nature or essence of the sport. I mean, the simplest one is, is the scheduling. And so that's something they seem to be a bit of ahead of, that this was a bit of a, an anomaly. But then it's not... Just as simple as temperature, because as as mentioned earlier, there have been there have been hotter races. So there's this kind of whole uh, cocktail of factors. This wasn't uh, a back to back, but I know there were people that were carrying illnesses into this race, and so that's going to be a factor as well potentially. So mitigating things. But I think the easiest things that could be instigated are scheduling with common sense, and so that seems like they may be maybe ahead of that curve already. Um, this had a, the added issues, obviously, with the the tires, and so um, I'm better at talking about the, the body than tires. But I know that the the setup meant that the work required from the drivers was greater than it would be normally. And so, if you're doing more work, if you're resisting more forces, you're driving faster, you will produce more heat. You will also be um, more cognitively demanding, um, and so any problems associated with decision making whilst you're driving a car could be impacted. You've also got things that, although this might have been slightly unexpected, I mean, I know it's hotter on the Thursday and the Friday, it could even be that perhaps you reduce the number of laps or something. You could have a a late call that the race is a bit shorter. I'm not advocating it becomes a second sprint or something, but it could be that you do something like that. Um, One of the issues with actual sort of cutoffs and things is it's difficult because I think that needs to be driver data led rather than condition led. Um, because as people rightly say, you know, Bahrain, I think, you know, five was the hottest Singapore is frequently hot and humid. Um, so it's not just, if you reach a certain temperature, you can't do X. Um, it's a combination of the temperatures, the, the track setup, the race requirements. Um, so, you know, if you're fighting hard in the middle of a pack, that'll be doing you'll be doing presumably more work than if you're driving in clean air at the front um which might might explain why max thought it was just top five for difficult races and everyone else seemed to think number one um but it needs to be driver led and although some data are collected from the drivers the fia don't to my knowledge don't release or do anything with that data and i've spoken to a couple of people recently i know that the drivers don't see it and the performance coaches don't see it so what you need to know is what is what level of strain are the drivers under for a certain set of combination rather than what is the you know what are the environmental factors that's too simplistic as a as a cutoff and so scheduling will change the environment 
race setup, so tyres, tracks, etc., will will change the demands of the race. And I think com- in combination, you could have some physiological cutoffs that we could see driver heart rate or core data or whatever during a race, which I think would make good TV as well as as a good safety measure. Um, but without that data, and the FIA is, I say, I think are sitting on it from glove-related data. But without that data in the public domain, it's difficult to ascertain what those limits might might be. Yeah, I think as as Chris says there, I think the easy starting point is just to ensure that the the calendar makes sense from a let's not go and race in really hot places at really hot times of the year. That seems like a logical starting point, especially as you know we're increasingly aware of global temperatures trending upwards. So uh, that seems like a good starting point from a technological point of view. Um, I'm sure many of listeners to this podcast will have listened to the uh, the race F1 tech show. Our our sister podcast with your your good self Ed and Gary Anderson was was talking about potential tech solutions in the cars, possibly mandating specific cooling technology um, when temperatures reach a certain threshold. So you're not looking to add potentially heavy pieces of cooling equipment into cars just as a kind of standard thing, but potentially mandating them, you know, cooling seats, something like that. Uh, potentially other things as well when it's deemed that temperatures have reached a certain level. So I think there are multiple levers that could be pulled to improve the situation and it might be a case of there's only a few things that that need to be done Um, but I think at this point it's probably worth bearing all of these things in mind. I've seen the things about the cooling seats as well. One of the issues with that potentially is the fact that the drivers are encapsulated in their flame retardant or fire retardant suits and undersuits etc means that the likelihood of anything such as that having a meaningful effect is quite minimal. Um, we've done some work in athletes whereby you, know, you might wear a cooling vest. So you'll have seen the the drivers uh, before a race and after a race will wear um, a cooling vest or a cooling collar or something like that. Um, generally, they feel quite nice. The closer they are to the skin, the more they're going to feel quite nice. So if you've got garments between you and the and the and the and the cooling vest uh, already you're taking away some of the cooling effect but from a physiological point of view most of them do not deliver enough cooling to actually lower strain so athletes might feel better with one but they're not actually lowering the actual strain and so from this point of view i think if we're trying to mitigate the effects that we saw at the weekend we need something that's going to reduce the actual strain, not the perceived strain. And actually, there's an argument as well. I do a lot of I do a lot of work looking at this sort of stuff. So, like altering how hot someone feels, and everyone will always say that could be dangerous. You know, if you make someone not feel as hot as they actually are, you might override a stop signal. So maybe Sergeant, for example, feels fine, or maybe he's not actually fine. And actually, him stopping on Sunday was a really good example of an elite athlete. Um, making a difficult but very sensible and mature choice. Um, if you had a cooling device that just lowered how you felt, it's the sort of equivalent we mentioned sometimes of like if you run with a painkiller. The injury is still there. You're just masking something. Um, but in the F1 situation, I don't think anything really exists that would offer enough cooling to even make them feel cold through all those suits and with the the engine. And so I think although it's a nice – suggestion and i've seen it mentioned a few times i think in practicality it it wouldn't have the calling power to 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 do much um so i think we need to think of something slightly more aggressive or something slightly more um targeted ed you'll probably be uh, you might remember this i seem to remember reading something about keki rosberg at the uh, dallas grand prix in in 84 wearing some kind of water-cooled skull cap or, or or something like that is that ring a bell with you yeah, yeah, he uh, he famously uh, picked one of those up, sort of almost a bit on a whim, but it was incredibly, incredibly hot race, and yeah, a lot of drivers wilted in that, and that supposedly made a difference. Although, obviously, we don't really know what physiological difference it, it made. It's it's very easy to um, equate correlation and causation there, isn't it? It might just have been that that he was okay, and the, the way the race went wasn't difficult for him for for whatever reason. But it's an interesting point isn't it anything has to be data driven and data led doesn't it in terms of actually knowing what you're judging it's always very reassuring if you put in some measure to cool the drivers or whatever and you think right that's job done but I think as as Chris has pointed out that can create its own dangers and Sergeant kind of pulling out by his own choice as well I think led people down a path of um, 
you know, believing that the drivers would be able to kind of decide when the race is too hot. Um, but obviously for Sargent, you know, he was running, I think, in last place, um, far away from the points. So that decision was obviously a lot easier had he been fighting for his first points. You know, it's obviously very hard to say, but that decision would certainly be harder. Um, it's the same in wet conditions, right? You can't say to the drivers, well, you know, if it's too wet, then stay in the garage. You know, th the drivers aren't the ones deciding how dangerous the conditions are in that case. So I think it's got to be the same in, in these conditions. Um, and it's not any slant on the drivers either if they can't race in these conditions. We saw lots of reaction, you know, saying, well, these are the best drivers in the world and stuff. Why can't they deal with it? But it's really important to, to take the decision out of their hands as well. Obviously, if somebody wants to stop, they can like Sargent. But, you know, beyond that, they've got to be some kind of decision out of their hands and out of possibly even the team's hands as well. Because similarly, you know, the teams have got objectives and prize money to be won and, and all sorts of things resting on what their drivers do. So I think it's important that the FAA, as they do in wet conditions, take the decision out of the hands. And then, uh, you know, it, it's fully within theirs to make a proper scientific decision and then it's not based on emotion of whatever's at stake in the race yeah and i think there's endless examples of that in all manner of, of human activities that you need some kind of framework otherwise uh, otherwise bad things uh, happen but it is interesting josh that this was it almost came as a bit of a surprise to drivers obviously they all knew they had to prepare for a hot race but i guess awareness of where that line is that a lot of drivers said this was at the limit or close to the limit so it's that point judging that point where difficult goes into impossible do you think quite a few of those drivers will have realized how serious a topic this is in that there is a set of circumstances that could push them into a into a dangerous place it was a bit of a surprise i think you know singapore is always well prepared for and is always expected this wasn't there's only been one race before that was you know i think more or less fine it was warm but there was nowhere near the same effects this isn't to say that they did no training for it or weren't prepared at all, but perhaps there was just, you know, that 5% or that 10% not done for this race, which, you know, should be done in the future for, for similar kind of temperatures and humidities. But yeah, they, they were certainly caught out by it. And it's, you know, not a problem that's going to go away because we're increasingly going to, to countries which are hotter in general with the calendar. There's obviously more races, there's more double headers, there's more triple headers. The w world as a whole is, you know, there's more extreme temperatures. So this isn't a problem that's going to go away. And although we may not see it for the rest of the year, I have no doubt we'll be seeing similar situations in the future. So it, it's imperative that the FIA is taking action and they've made a good starting point. Um, but obviously we have to wait and see where that goes. You'd expect them really to make a statement in the, the wake of this. You know, there's so much public outcry. I think it, it makes sense to make a statement, but obviously what we need to see is, is action. But uh, I don't think you can fault what they've done so far. They've even listed some suggestions, so they're clearly thinking about it. That That's a good starting point for me, but obviously you'll want to see um, what comes out of this. And I, I hope it's public too. I hope that um, we can see their recommendations, that the drivers and teams are properly told of their recommendations because education is so important in this. And um, and hopefully you know they'll reach out to different uh, experts involved in different sports as well because those sports have know how to deal with stuff like this they've had different experiences I, I hope they kind of go broad with you know where they take advice from rather than just being within this this motorsport world which is not is probably really behind on this kind of issue compared to, to other sports yeah I, I completely agree with you Josh and it's worth saying this isn't just a sort of closed cockpit motorsport issue i'm sure some of our listeners will be familiar with what happened in motor gp in india a few weeks ago where um they had extreme temperatures riders were suffering and obviously there's there's a lot more kind of rider in the wind i guess or competitor in the in the wind in those scenarios so you know they have much shorter races already than in formula one but they were having to reduce the duration of races just to make things a little bit more comfortable for for riders so it's very much an issue I think that motorsport needs to stay on top of because obviously air-conditioned indoor venues and reducing the amount of protective clothing that an athlete or a racer is wearing, they're just not options. Yeah, I think that's I think that's important. Like I think like Josh was saying there about it's not going to go away. I think it's also important to, to say as well that it's not going to happen every week. I know that some people kind of think that the, you know, 
this is going to ruin what they think of as as Formula One. Like, you know, too many restrictions. It's meant to be dangerous. It's meant to be fast, et cetera. So I think, I think there needs to be something in place for when it's too much. Um, I would answer those people that actually, if you make some changes which improve the driver safety and welfare, you probably get better races. If you, you know, in these situations where the drivers, which remember they are, you know, the best drivers in the world, if they're driving nearer their optimum, during a race like i say it could be taking 10 laps off or something like that you're probably going to get a better race and also one of the things that's often overlooked in the fia hopefully will not do so is the drivers get mentioned obviously the drivers are the ones that are in front of the cameras on on sunday they're the ones you know in front of the microphones but there's at least 50 people in each garage <laughs> pretty much every race weekend um they don't have quite as many of the niceties as we touched upon earlier sometimes as the drivers they're the ones that are building the car some of them are building the car from wednesday onwards and i've been in some of those garages with a few few devices measuring in the back back of the garage in the shade about 40 degrees celsius uh take it out onto the into the 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 track into the sun you can get you know much higher than that because of the sun the solar radiation and so I think it's not just driver welfare; it's you know it's it's team welfare. Um, you now the engineers have got to make good decisions under heat stress. The mechanics have got to make good repairs under heat stress. Um, it was quite noticeable that we often say that heat impairs this sort of performance. And McLaren's pit crew pull out a world record pit stop, but um, you know, it shows you that you can you know you're not always impaired. But um, I think it's just yeah, it's just like you said. A, this won't ruin F1. So for those that kind of think it's going to ruin F1, it's, it, it doesn't need to and it shouldn't. Um, it's just introducing some common sense measures when poss- when needed. It's a bit like a concussion substitute in other sports, for example. It's you know, It doesn't ruin rugby. It just has a bit of an increased player welfare. And to think of it as not just the drivers. Yes, the drivers are likely to be the ones that are going to be the face of it and likely to make the change because if they, if they kick up a fuss... Uh, something has to happen, um, but it needs to be a little bit more wide, uh, wide-reaching than that. Yeah, I think people can forget the physicality of what the mechanics and engineers do and how they actually have their own programs for training as well as well as the drivers. You often only think of the drivers being the ones to train for it, but obviously they do a, a lot of work around it. So completely agreed on them getting more help for that. Um, what's interesting, I think, as well is. In terms of shortening races um, before the they've even happened, it, it's something that the FIA has always shied away from within Formula One. Um, I was talking about it with Ed the other day, and there's not really a precedent for them doing that before the race, as far as we could remember, uh, which is interesting because obviously MotoGP has done that, Formula E does that for different reasons, other series do that. So I was wondering, are, you know, are they going to change their kind of habit on that, or do you think, Ed, that they'll kind of treat it a bit like wet races where they're more likely to do it in the middle of a race they're more likely to stop a race or more likely to red flag it rather than kind of deciding that before the Grand Prix they'll certainly be minded to make it a more interventional thing when certain conditions are achieved rather than doing it before the fact but I guess this is where the science comes in and perhaps Chris you'd have a opinion on this in ter- is it in terms of the heat um situation is it just a linear thing that it just sort of slowly creeps up could you just have a set of circumstances that you get to lap 50 and it's like right this is meeting the criteria for no we don't want to carry on could you actually anticipate that and and sort of do it before the race starts or or do you have to be reactive on it and and monitor live conditions what's the what's the kind of most scientific way of of doing this with the way the human body actually reacts because everybody would like a nice very easy green lights on and then suddenly there's a red light it's like no something something's changed and it's not and it's not acceptable but reality is usually a lot more messy than that isn't it yes human data is very messy um i mean it's, the simplest way to think of it is it is linear if the intensity of the work stays the same so if we go into another setting for example say you were running at a set pace your body temperature would initially increase and then it would continue to increase at that pace if you're in a hot environment because you're producing heat and you can't lose it as effectively what you can do in that situation though is that you can slow down so you can make it a non-linear increase by running a bit slower 
Um, and other sports that happens, you know, good tennis players, for example, will change how they play depending on the conditions. You know, if you're a good tennis player, you want to make the points short and you want to make your opponent run. So you are using you know, that heat to change from a strategic technical point of view what you do. In Formula One, the cars are designed to run fast. So it's not like they're going to have a lap where they're going to do 60 kilometers an hour for a couple of laps. Like they're designed to run fast. You're not competitive unless you run fast. Um, and in something like the weekend where with other factors, tire limits and track limits, they're basically working full out for the entire duration. They have no opportunity to ease off the work that they're doing. So they will be accumulating heat, not losing it, as we talked about before, because of the clothing they're in and the environment they're in. And so they will be getting progressively warmer. Um, if there was a way of slowing the heat gain, then it's not linear. But that's very difficult in Formula One, other than sort of everyone stops after 25 laps, gets out of the car, takes their overalls and the helmet off, <laughs> cools down for 20 minutes, and then gets back in. Um, so from that point of view, if it's, if it's something like you know it's going to be full on, it's going to be a relatively linear increase after initial spurt. Um, and so you could have this idea, but again, that goes back to without the data to like confirm that that's a problem. And so I think it, no, we, and it needs to be physiological or human data driven, not temperature of the track or whatever driven. And then also you get with that little, that like you talked about earlier about the messiness and the noise of the data, not all 20 of the drivers will be responding the same way as well. So you end up with this, do you have a, do you have a, do you have a guide? For example, you can they can measure heart rate in real time, I believe, from the glove. So you that's a good marker of cardiovascular strain. The hotter you get, the higher your heart rate is for the same intensity. So if you go for a run today versus Singapore in the summer, same intensity, your heart rate will be higher in Singapore. So heart rate is a good marker of heat strain. You don't have to measure body temperature, although it's ideal. So you could... You could have a driver-specific cutoff. So if a driver reaches X percent of their max or whatever, um, or you could have a blanket rule. But then if you have a blanket rule, not all drivers are going to be affected to the same extent if they're at, I don't know, 160 beats per minute, for example. So it's going to be quite nuanced. But knowing that all things being equal, the harder you work, the higher the strain, you could preemptively reduce the the number of laps or whatever which would reduce the work which would reduce the the heat gain the heat load um it's just how you do it without the human data and how you do it knowing that humans are different even in a small sample of 20 they're all going to be different and i guess that's an argument for whatever the solution is more live data of of key key points of each driver is probably going to be central to this but i guess josh we should put the the other side of the argument in if there is another side of the argument in that obviously this is a very unusual set of circumstances in Qatar I can't think of another Grand Prix for a long time I mean Dallas 84 is one that leaps to mind but it's quite rare we get ones where things are this extreme so can we just say well it's just a confluence of the temperatures and the conditions and the time of year of the race and the nature of the circuit and the fact they could push harder during stints because of the tyre situation that just means this was a, a complete outlier that doesn't need to be worried about again? Uh, no is the short answer. The, the slightly longer answer is obviously that would be, I think, burying our heads in the sand. I mean, you know, if this happened once every five years, for example, that would still be a problem that needs fixing. You know, the drivers were at risk on Sunday. Something worse could have happened. If this happened you know, once every 20 years, you've still got to do something about it because it's, um, you know, it's important and, and, and the drivers were at risk on Sunday. Obviously, I think it's going to happen a lot more than once in 20 years. But yeah, it, it's not something we can ignore. And it doesn't mean that F1, as if we said, you know, is going to be any less of a challenge or any less physical. The drivers are still going to be pushing. They're probably still going to be exhausted, even with some of these solutions. You know, they're still going to be having a true test of, of their metal. But yeah, there's a way we can do that in a, in a safer way with, without taking away any of the, the, the challenge, really. Yeah, just to just to echo that, so like if we if we do a study in the lab, we will conduct you know a thorough risk assessment. We have to identify anything that might happen, and we have to have a mitigation for it if it arises. Um, touch wood, almost all the times nothing happens. 
Um, but we still have to have that procedure. We have a duty of care to to our participants, and therefore we need to know what we're going to do if X arises. The FIA and the teams have a duty of care over their drivers, staff, personnel. Um, and I'm sure the FIA and every other governing body will have all sorts of contingencies, risk assessments that no one ever knows about because that event hasn't happened. <laughs> um, this is one that's just quite visual. Um, and so it's a bit of a, a good incentive for them to maybe make this this risk assessment a bit more visual. And like, like Josh said, this is something that's likely to happen more frequently than other things, but it's not going to happen every week. Um, and so the idea is it can just be, you know, something that should be done for duty of care without compromising the integrity of the sport or those sorts of things. You know, you don't want to lose consciousness walking along a street, let alone driving a car at 200 kilometers an hour. You know, I've seen some people, including some high profile people, pushing back that it's all part of the challenge. But I think that, you know, we don't need people to die for something to happen. We need we need near misses for something to happen and then we can build common sense uh, strategies to address it. And if there's one thing we know from the history of just about everything, some of the same people who will complain about action being taken preemptively will be the first to complain about action not being taken after the fact. So, you know, it's very, very easy to be to be knee-jerk on this one way or the other. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Johnny, something Chris alluded to there was high-profile people uh, espousing a certain view on this. And obviously, there's been a healthy debate on the topic on social media. And some former drivers chipped in. Uh, Martin Brundle's comment caught the eye. He said, it's races like Qatar and very rainy days, which make F1 drivers look like heroes and athletes they are. Absolutely don't buy into the weak view that we shouldn't put them through this kind of challenge. Check out Senna in Brazil, Stewart at rainy Nürburgring, louder post-crash, etc., etc., do you share that viewpoint that this race represented just another great challenge for the drivers that they had to deal with? And we should say Martin Brundle is someone who raced in Formula One for a long time. So he, he, is, he is at least very, well, I was going to say very well qualified. From one dimension, he's well qualified to, to take that view, perhaps not from a, uh, uh, from a scientific background qualified, though. Yeah, I mean, I have huge respect for Martin, um, everything he did as a driver, as a commentator. I completely get where he's coming from here. But as we've already alluded to a few times, I think there's a notion in Formula One and in modern sport in general where there are times where the competitors need protecting from themselves almost. And, you know, you have comments like Esteban Ocon saying, you know, you need to kill me to retire the car. Um, which just shows you these are fiercely competitive individuals who you know, it's their job to ultimately get the best result they can out there. And they will basically give, do anything to get to that, uh, that point. So I don't think any of us want to see that challenge diminish, but at the same time, you know, sports in the modern era have a duty to protect the competitors as far as reasonably possible. And as Chris mentioned, you've seen it in rugby, you've seen it in other sports. We've been, even seen it in F1 with things like the introduction of the halo. You know, I think, when that was initially talked about, there were people who were talking about that potentially diminishing the challenge um, of the Formula One driver. So every Formula One fan would agree that F1 has to remain this enormous challenge, this sort of like pinnacle of motorsport. And it's vital that the, the drivers are still seen and viewed as heroes and still feel like heroes, but it, it just can't be at any cost. 
they just came across more as victims, I think, on Sunday than than heroes, you know, yeah. because they were suffering in this heat. I don't think anybody, oh, you know, wow, that those top three such heroes for making it. You know, you thought, oh no, I feel sorry for them. I hope they're okay. Hopefully, let's not put not um, you know put them through that again. Um, and it's interesting as well that you know Louder is used an example because obviously in 1976 he had that amazing recovery, but also remember how he lost the title was because he, you know didn't think the conditions were were safe enough basically and and he made that decision because of a real safety risk so um i, I think that's a an interesting side note but yeah fully agree on on johnny's point that that unfortunately just doesn't really hold up and and it's a shame because martin brundle's done some great work on on safety but i think unfortunately um this one was a a miss there was a there was a bit in it that i think framed what he said that was problematic which is when he described it as the weak view because as we talked about at length, there is a that there is a hard line you cross at which it goes from difficult to deeply problematic. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about that sort of that sort of view. Like Johnny said, Martin Brundle's a very sharp guy, and most of the time he's right. I think he's uh, I, I see where he's coming from on this, but I think he's probably slightly underestimating some of the uh, the, the realities uh, behind it. I'd be interested to hear what Chris thinks, but kind of what do you think would the timescale be for collecting data, you know, and, and especially with testing being so limited and, you know, what, what are we talking about here? Say, say there was a solution ready to test. Um, would that need to be over several Grand Prix weekends? Would we need to have these kind of temperatures again somewhere to, to know if that, you know, tech was working? What kind of, yeah, timescale would we be looking at and, and how would they go about it, do, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I believe they've been having the the heart rate data in the glove since 2018 or something like that. So they must be sitting on data. So I mean, the first thing to do would be relatively quick. It would be you know a five year retrospective of heart rate as an indicator of stressor versus ambient temperature conditions versus driver performance. You could do that um, very very quickly. You could see if there are any spikes or any issues. Like what what level of strain are they under, and is that considerably higher in certain situation so would we see a massive spike on sunday for example that would give us some indication um then when it comes to testing any potential interventions then it gets a bit more complicated um teams would need to be encouraged but teams have track days they have you know practice sessions you could you know they have two drivers a team they have reserve drivers if there was a concerted effort and they were encouraged to do so you could get sufficient data to rule in or out things relatively quickly um lots of it like i say would be ruled out at the at the idea stage um so go back to the cold chair the cooling chair you know someone would have to be shown data that there was a chair that produced sufficient cooling that could cause a change now you could do that mathematically it's quite easy if you know how much how much heat a chair can extract, how much heat something would create, and what insulation layers are in the middle, you could do that mathematically. I can tell you it would have to be extremely powerful to do to do something meaningful. Um, but you could do that. Um, if, it's, if it showed promise, a chair or something else, you could do proof of concept work without even needing Formula One drivers. Plenty of labs, including ours or others around, have climatic-controlled environmental chambers, rooms, uh, those sorts of things, you could model a situation whereby you put an individual or uh, a thermal mannequin under those sorts of conditions and see if it works. And then the last thing could be actually sticking it on a on a driver. Um, for years, we've been having half conversations with trying to get hold of this, this strain data. Um, it's very difficult, um, but it could be done quite quickly and maybe – something like Sunday might encourage the FIA to, under all sort of GDPR-related concerns, get them addressed, but then might be able to release the data they have already have to somebody who could look at it. I'll throw my hat in the ring. <laughs> um, and then then could look at, okay, where like to what extent do we need to do something about it? And then we could do – it would be a case of – you'd probably do proof of concept and then you would do in the field. But if they wanted to, you could probably have it done and dusted by – practice for the start of the next season we've talked a lot about what drivers do and drivers opinions and what the FIA could do etc but Johnny the GPDA I guess must have a role in this the Grand Prix Drivers Association this must have popped this up on their radar so 
what do you think their role needs to be? Yeah, I mean, I think in any professional sport, the the competitors' union, which is essentially what the the GPDA is, they they can and they they should be having a big say on these kind of matters and anything basically to do with with driver welfare. Really, you know, we've already heard George Russell, who's um, director of the GPDA, having a lot to say on the subject. He's never one to sort of hold back when giving his opinion anyway. And we've heard from Alex Verts as well, the chairman, who was actually one of the people who suggested this uh, this cooling seat, which which Chris has suggested, you know, could be potentially problematic. But he's also talked about, you know, potentially should we be looking at rerouting, you know, hydraulic lines in and around the cockpit so they're not, you know, essentially cooking the driver as he's doing his job. Whatever they come up with, I expect this issue is going to be extremely high on the agenda whenever they convene next. You know, it's a it's an organization that has existed basically throughout history to improve safety of the drivers. And I would say that a fair amount of this falls under the the safety remit. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether they actually how big a part they play in guiding the direction that the FIA ultimately take. Uh, and Josh, trying to wrap up everything we've said, if there was a Qatar Grand Prix weekend about to start and the conditions are all identical, everything was was the same. Do you think it would be the right call to let the race go ahead exactly as it did? That's a difficult question. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, you'd have to say, I mean, I go with Chris's suggestion of maybe shortening the race, but it's so hard to say that without the, the data that, you know, is so important to it. I mean, knowing Lance Stroll was passing in and out of consciousness, but then you've got to consider, you know, wh- when was that? That wasn't right at the end of the race. That was, you know, partway through the race. So even with a reduction in the laps, we'd have still had... I mean, Ocon was vomiting in his helmet on f- lap 15 or 16. So that wasn't far into the race. So, you know, it- it's a really difficult one. I think kind of what it shows or my uh, struggle to f- find the answer is perhaps showing that it's very, very hard to say, you know, what we'd have done differently. It's clearly that's why you need a full analysis and full data. Uh, the obvious answer isn't clear to, well, just a regular watcher like me. So, yeah, it, it, it's a tricky one. I'm interested to see if, if Chris thinks anything could have been done differently. I mean, we've talked about so many solutions, but with everything they had in place, you know, what, what do you think could have made a difference with not adding anything that they, they don't already have? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to sit on the scientist scientist fence and say, kind of, you know, we haven't we haven't got the data, and we didn't have the data in advance, so it would be impossible to preempt. You would assume the the drivers are well prepared, they're fit. Um, many of them undertake heat adaptation strategies, the heat acclimation, and things. The race wasn't as hot as other races, so you you'd have no reason to change anything preemptively based upon what history had history has told us we now though have some some evidence some data although it will be limited to show that it was too much so i don't think you could have done anything preemptively there was nothing there to suggest um anything different i mean i'm sure maybe i I don't i'm not privy to, to 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 what they all did but maybe some of the drivers would have changed their preparation you know if they did it again they would change their preparation maybe they would do a bit more heat training or perhaps they would do some more cold water immersion prior to getting in their overalls. Um, I, I mean, I certainly some did, but I don't know whether all did. I know that some of them were, were I've mentioned earlier, I think were carrying illnesses from, from Japan. And so that's not going to help, but you know, race drivers traveling the world, you know, plane air, all that sort of stuff are going to get illnesses throughout. So I don't think there was anything we could have done preemptively, but then the flip side is now we have this, data it's not really data it's pretty much anecdotal but it's also irrefutable we now know that something was too much um and so i wouldn't think you could you know you couldn't do anything to stop it happening or change it in advance but now we need to make sure it doesn't happen again and without sounding like a you know stuck whatever it is it keeps repeating itself um we need we need the data to make that an informed decision um to ensure that what they do propose is evidence-based and meaningful. So like, you know, as Johnny just mentioned there, the cooling chair, it sounds logical, it makes sense, but it needs to do something. Otherwise, you're just, you're just see, being seen to do something rather than actually doing something. And this is cheating on your question a little bit, Ed, but kind of obviously if the tyres worked 
properly for this weekend, you know, the crisis would have been a bit less perhaps. You know, stuff like changing, having to change the track limits, obviously that I think added to the exasperation for some of the drivers too, kind of struggling to concentrate. I mean, obviously that was effect of the dehydration and, and things like that, not from the, the new track limits, but that certainly didn't help because um, that's what part of what made this kind of the worst case scenario, having the, you know, them having to do the flat out racing and stuff. I, I wonder if they hadn't have had to push as much, then maybe we don't have this much of a problem kind of taking Verstappen as a bit of a case study in that. I mean, he didn't have to obviously go through any traffic or battle with any other cars, but he was able to take it a little bit easier and obviously was still exhausted. But as we said, you know, maybe not as exhausted as, as the others. Again, it's a bit debatable whether that's true, but I think certainly had the tyres worked properly and had we not had all the, the track limit stuff, then maybe the drivers would have been less exhausted. I guess good in a way that, well as good as it can be for these drivers to be experiencing symptoms, at least it's prompted some action because had it not happened this weekend, I'm sure it would have happened a different weekend. So at least it started that conversation from it getting so bad. And as Chris said, I think any solution just has to be data-driven and properly tested. And um, yeah, that, that's the solution to come. And then maybe when we have that, we can then answer this question a few months later and say, well, that's what we should have done or that's what we can do now to, to stop it happening. That's the the hope. And that's a final question, Chris. Do you think there's enough research being done on F1 drivers across the board in terms of what they're going through as athletes? Does F1 as a whole need to commission some proper studies into this to try and look at these specific cases? I know there's plenty of scientific literature on on athlete performance and also on just the human body's reaction to things. But are we looking at some gaps where really we need to fill these in for the specific conditions F1 drivers are facing? And if so, is is that really something F1 as a whole probably needs to tackle rather than expecting it to be done um, kind of organically by by entities that might have a stake in driver performance and that kind of thing elsewhere? Is this time for a really big centralised push on this? Uh, well, with all conflicts of interest declared, yes. Um there are there are hardly any there are hardly any data at all for Formula One. So uh, I think the last time I looked, peer reviewed literature, there are about twenty twenty five articles in motor racing at all. Um, I don't know what the latest is for for football, but it's going to be in the tens of thousands. Now that doesn't mean you need tens of thousands, but it means you, need, you definitely need more than twenty. Um, some teams and some drivers will have their own in house data, so. It's not like there's a complete absence of data, um, but there is an absence of large-scale data. There is an absence of peer-reviewed data for sure. Uh, we've done some we've done some work with with individual drivers, so we have lo- we have ends of one for various things, which from a uh, a sort of consultancy rather than a research point of view is fine. But nobody else sees that data because obviously that is in-house. That's for the driver. We've done similarly with with teams as well. And as a sport, that means that nobody is kind of learning at the rate that perhaps we need to because the, the data is not in the public domain. There's this kind of battle between um, competitive advantage and greater good, which is a difficult thing to, to look at. Once that issue of competitive advantage versus greater good can be, can be sort of uh, – a resolution can be found – I think we certainly need we certainly need more work in the field because we just don't know we're just guessing at the moment and you might make a good guess you might make a bad guess but uh I mean I'm not yeah I'd rather have some numbers to kind of um base any actions on rather than sort of just a lucky guess or an unlucky guess yeah well I think that points to a direction that F1 as a whole needs to start taking some real action on because as you say it's nothing without data and i'm surprised by how little scientific literature there is not even really enough to do a proper metadata study or anything that's that's quite uh quite concerning so that seems to me to be the most obvious course of action this has got to be studied properly hasn't it and published so that it's it's the the, the whole body of knowledge is, is being augmented not just little pockets having their own knowledge for their own use yeah, definitely. And it kind of goes back to what I say earlier about, you know, the car versus the human. And so there's, you know, it is a data sport. Uh, the car, every element of the car is modeled and engineered to 
a millimeter or a you know, nanogram of whatever it is. Um, but when it comes to human data, not only can you not get it in real time, uh, you can't even get it retrospectively, even though it's collected. Um, and it's very difficult to collect any idea of the stresses that these these guys are after. I mean, it's it's you know it's it's everywhere in every other sport. It's a, it's an outlier that the athlete isn't really even considered an athlete. Um, to, to have a to have a data driven sport such as F one, where the person in charge is a bit of a black box, is is. Is, is strange we know how quickly they're reacting we know how quickly they're turning we know how quickly they're pressing a pedal but we don't know what that means to them um and so i think we need a greater focus on them and to, to repeat a point i said earlier everyone around them there's a whole team and so you have 50 odd humans that could all be impacted by various things uh, that currently are kind of overlooked in formula one which is i mean i've been doing it now for nearly 10 years and when I first started, I was told the drivers were interchangeable. Well, they have to stand next to each other to know that they're they're not they're not the same. <laughs> so, so um, you know, they're different heights, different builds, different size. So, we've moved on a little bit, and some of the drivers some of the drivers more than others. So, the new younger drivers are far more interested in the data of themselves than some of the older drivers. Um, but we're not we're not there yet. Well, you certainly highlighted there a great incongruity <laughs> in uh, in Formula One in terms of the data-driven aspects and the uh, uh, the neglect of the drivers. So, yeah, a clear course of action there. Well, we could talk about this for hours, but there's only so much of, uh, <laughs> of everyone's time we can take up. So thanks to Josh, Johnny, and particularly our special guest, Dr. Chris Tyler, for joining us. We'll be back on Monday with a very special episode on newly crowned three-time world champion Max Verstappen. But in the meantime, you can check out our other podcasts, including the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, our MotoGP, Formula E, and IndyCar podcast, and Bring Back V10s. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channel too. So in short, stay tuned to the race for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.